The first lecture is an introduction, Russian Jews in the United States. I wanted to bring it home to everybody by talking about the thing that we all share in common. Whether we do it or we don't do it, we live in a world of Coca-Cola. I know that because I see a can of Coca-Cola. Our friend from Isaac Mayer Wise Synagogue in Cincinnati also drinks Coca-Cola. That's fantastic. And what I want to talk about today as an introduction with the old, with the all-American drink, Coca-Cola. And let's start our story. In a small town, in a small city called Kovna, Lithuania, on the day before the fast of Tisha B'Av, 1870. And our hero for today, for this afternoon, is someone by the name of Tovia Geffen. Tovia Geffen was born in Kovna in 1870. He was brought up, it was a traditional Lithuanian city, and he was brought up in a traditional Lithuanian mode. He didn't go to school the way we understand school. He went to some form of yeshiva, some form of Talmudic education. He was married in 1898, and his wife operated a paper goods business, which allowed her husband to study Torah, to study Talmud, while she worked to support the family. In, eight, in April of 1903, there was a tragic pogrom in the Russian city of Kishinev. The story of the pogrom in Kishinev is a, is, a, is a complicated and tragic story about a Jewish community not unfamiliar to us. A Jewish community where actually 50% of the people who lived in, in Kishinev were Jews. And out of nowhere, there was an attack on the Jewish community. People were killed. Businesses and homes were attacked. And the Jews became frightened not only in Kishinev, but throughout the whole Russian Empire. And many thousands of Jews, really hundreds of thousands of Jews, left Russia after that massacre. Most came to the United States, but that was also the time of the Aliyah to Israel, also the British community began this way. That was a seminal moment in the history of Russian Jewry. And after that pogrom, Rabbi and Mrs. Geffen decided that they needed to come to America. So what does a rabbi do when he arrives in New York in 1904? Well, what he does is he finds a shul to be the rabbi. They probably didn't pay him very much if they paid him anything. But they probably gave him an apartment. And let's be honest, an apartment was probably one room for he, his wife, and his children. But it was a living and it was a place to be and it was familiar. Familiar as we'll see to someone who of course didn't speak any English and of course didn't understand American culture at all. Unfortunately, New York City was bad for his health. Some of you can understand that. And therefore, he didn't, but unfortunately, he didn't have Southern California to go to. So therefore, what he did is he got a job, this is also fascinating, he got a job collecting money 
for a Jewish school for a yeshiva at Kavna, right? He came from Kavna. There was a Jewish school in Kavna who needed a representative in the United States who would travel from city to city to collect money. And that's what he did. He traveled from city to city, collect money. I mean, it wasn't the most glamorous position. He wasn't home with his family, right? His family stayed in New York. But at least what? At least he felt better because he didn't have to stay in the, in the, in the kind of the smog and the, and the, um, and, and the, and the tenements of the Lower East Side. As part of his travels, he spent a Shabbat, a weekend, in Canton, Ohio. You can imagine in Canton, Ohio, they didn't have that many Lithuanian Torah scholars. So when he spent Shabbat in Canton, Ohio, they invited him to deliver the sermon on Shabbat morning. Okay, that's nice. They were so impressed by his sermon that they gave him the job. They said, bring your family, and we want you to be our rabbi. Well, sounded better than traveling from place to place and definitely better than living in the Lower East Side. So he moved to Canton, Ohio. Now, also you should know at the beginning of the 20th century, the communities aren't that much different than what we you know, are familiar with in the 21st century. There were 200 Jewish families in Canton, Ohio. There were two Orthodox synagogues, two shochtim, two ritual slaughters, and two butchers. If you were a member of one synagogue, you hated the other synagogue. If you went to one butcher, you never ever went to the other butcher. Right? There were only 200 families, but they found a way to fight with one another. Rabbi Geffen was able, at least for a while, to unite the two communities. And he alternated, can you imagine, you know, not only were there two rival synagogues, but they were down the block from one another. So he was able to unite the communities by alternating Shabbases from one community to the other. Three years in Canton, it was too cold in Ohio. It also was bad for his health. You know, it's amazing. You know, they talk about the history of anything, but now we're talking about the history of rabbis, the history of American Judaism. And you know, it was really driven, you know, and the story of Coca-Cola is driven by the fact that Rabbi Geffen didn't like the climate. He didn't like the climate in the Lower East Side. He didn't like the climate in Ohio. So in the summer of 1910, he attended a Zionist conference in Pittsburgh. And he saw an ad for a synagogue in Atlanta that was looking for a European rabbi. That means a Yiddish-speaking rabbi. We'll come back to that idea in a minute. And he got the job in Sherith, Israel, in Atlanta. Now, he got the job. He didn't go down for a weekend, right? Traveling from Canton, Ohio to Atlanta was a big deal. But he, you know, he, he, he spoke to somebody, and they were impressed, and he got the job. He spent the next 60 years in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, what does the Jewish community in Atlanta, Georgia, 1910, look like? First of all, there are 5,000 Jews in a city of 150,000 Jews. There's one Reform congregation that was made up mainly of well-to-do German Jews who had been around since the middle of the 1800s. There's one conservative synagogue that's made up of well-to-do Eastern European Jews who had come more recently, come at the end of the 19th century. And there were two Orthodox synagogues. In this case, it wasn't about a fight. There was an old neighborhood, 
and a new neighborhood. In the old neighborhood, there were Jews, you know, who had been there for several decades. But they tried to start a congregation in a new neighborhood of Atlanta. It was a small congregation, 75 members. They were looking for a rabbi, and they hired Rabbi Geffen. He was authentic. He was a European rabbi from Lithuania. He spoke only Yiddish. And if you're going to start a shul in 1910, you want an authentic rabbi. Now, just to give you a sense of how Rabbi Geffen felt about Atlanta, when he arrived in Atlanta with his family in 1910, he felt that the standard, standard sorry, of kosher were so bad that he refused to eat any meat in Atlanta. Actually, until he took over the butcher and the shochet, and he made sure that the meat was kosher. He established the first Jewish school. He was the teacher and the principal of that school. Most of the students in that school were his children at the beginning. Now, okay. Um, what about, let's just take one second. What about Judaism in the South at the beginning of the 1900s? Is Atlanta the only community in the South? The answer is no. There are Jews all over the place in the South. But Rabbi Geffen was the, was the most authentic rabbi at the time. And therefore, all kinds of questions came to Rabbi Geffen. Now, I need, I need to let you in on a little secret here. Rabbi Geffen was one of those types of people who never threw anything out. And the computer age, what that meant was that after he died, his family donated literally boxes and boxes and boxes of his papers. So we really can recreate his life and in a minute recreate the story of how he gave rabbinical supervision to Coca-Cola through these papers that he kept. Actually, these papers now are now in the Center for Jewish History, the American Jewish um, Historical Society on 16th Street in Lower Manhattan. Just to give you a feel. We have a letter that he, in which he, he, a request is made of him to find out whether a woman who lives in Atlanta, Lillian Singer, was previously married. What does that mean? That means that she's getting married somewhere else and they want to make sure that she's not, you know, that she has, if she was previously married, that she has a get. The only rabbi in the South who would know anything was Rabbi Geffen. Part of the problem, the pre-compute, the pre-email age is, we don't know what the answers ever were. We only know the questions that came to him. He didn't make a, he didn't make a Xerox of the, of, of the answers. In 1922, this is amazing. He's asked for assistance in getting visas for women following World War I who needed to come to the United States for chalitza. What does that mean? What that means is like this. The Torah says that a man and woman who are married, who have no children, if the man dies, the woman needs to either marry the man's brother 
or go through a ritual in which she, um, in which she says that she's not going to marry his, uh, his brother, but they need to be together for this ritual. So what happens sometimes? World War I, young men are at war. Sometimes, unfortunately, they would die, leaving a young widow sometimes without children. The problem happened more than just once or twice where the, where the brother of the deceased husband lived in the United States. Now, this woman would not be allowed to remarry unless she what? She came to the United States and went through this process. Now, you needed a visa, but not, they didn't give visas to everybody during that period. It was difficult, actually, in the 20s to get a visa to come to this country. Rabbi Geffen used to petition the government on behalf of these women in order to get visas. And then, something I want to share with you. And that's a letter that comes from somebody in Charleston, South Carolina. J.L. Goldberg Furniture House. Look here, let's read it together. This letter was found, um, this letter was found in his, um, in his files. J.L. Goldberg Furniture House, 444 King Street, Charleston, South Carolina, June 3rd, 1945. My dear Rabbi Geffen, you know, he doesn't know Rabbi Geffen directly. We'll, we'll see in a second. I have a question to ask for which I will appreciate if you can answer for me by return mail as soon as possible. Personally, I am, the, I am a keeper of the Sabbath, and I have never worked on the Sabbath, and I try to abide by the principles of the Sabbath to the letter of the law. I am anticipating opening a laundry pickup station with three partners on a commission basis with a local laundry. In this pickup station will be employed only one Gentile girl. I have went much into this section, having um, into this action, sorry, having purchased fix, fixtures, um, and it would have been satisfactory to have a Gentile girl to operate the store on the Sabbath, including the other days of the week. My only connection with this pickup station is that I will receive a portion of the revenue on a weekly or monthly basis. I had also thought, had this been against our Jewish traditional Sabbath laws, that I would not have the store operate on the Sabbath. The executives of the laundry with whom I am in partnership on this action will not accept the latter proposition, explaining to me that it would hardly be possible to operate without Saturday's business. And they further explain that they will be solely responsible for operating the station on the Sabbath. There are four partners in the whole connection, and I am the only keeper of the Sabbath. So therefore, I am asking your reverence if this will be satisfactory to operate on the Sabbath, and I want to impress upon you that I want to abide by the law, and then again trust that I may be able to keep my share of this, of this station without being sinful. I thank you very much for your anticipated prompt reply, answer, and I wish you good health with sincere personal regards. S. Irwin Goldberg. That's amazing. 1945. He writes a question to Rabbi Geffen. Now, we'll come back to this idea. He basically tells Rabbi Geffen that he needs permission to do this. He says, I want to impress upon you that I want to abide by the law, and then again trust that I may be able to keep my share of the station without being sinful. 
So he's telling Rabbi Geffen, I need permission. But he asks, he doesn't just do it, he asks for permission. And these came, there literally are dozens of these kinds of letters that were sent to Rabbi Geffen during these years. That's really give you a feel about what it meant to be a rabbi in Atlanta, an Eastern European Lithuanian rabbi in Atlanta during this period of American history. Now, as we all know, Coca-Cola is produced in Atlanta, Georgia. And you're not surprised that in addition to all the letters about visas for women coming from Europe and you know, furniture owners or laundry owners in Charleston who wanted to know whether they could own a business that would operate on the Sabbath. Questions came about Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola, the American drink. Is it kosher or is it not? Well, first of all, we need a little bit of history of Coca-Cola. In 1885, John Penburton, invented a cocoa wine. The stimulant of this cocoa wine was none other than cocaine. That's correct. That same year, the Fulton County government, Atlanta's in Fulton County, introduced prohibition. Right, prohibition was introduced earlier in Georgia. And therefore, they were, they were forced to change the recipe. It couldn't be a wine anymore. And therefore, it became a carbonated, non-alcoholic Coca-Cola. In 1903, they took out the stimulus after some opposition. They took out the stimulus of cocaine. It was originally sold in fountains at, you know, at, you know, at stores. It fa you know, at, what do they call it? At luncheonettes. I don't even know the word anymore. At luncheonettes. It cost a nickel for a glass of Coca-Cola. And it was used, among other things, for medicinal purposes. Just for history, you should know. Bottles were, in, were created in 1894. Vending machines, what would Coca-Cola be without vending machines? Vending machines in 1935, and now you're drinking your Coke, cans in 1955. I apologize, I'm not sure when they introduced Diet Coke, but I'm sure that's its own history. Now what's the problem with Coca-Cola? The problem with Coca-Cola is that there's a secret formula. Now the legend is that only two people know the secret formula in every generation. And of course, it's passed down, you know, at, you know, at, 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 you know, at great peril if anyone were to share this formula. That obviously is not exactly true. But it is true that there's an original copy of the formula of Coca-Cola, which is to this day in the vault of SunTrust Bank in Atlanta. So Rabbi Geffen gets multiple letters, which we have, asking him whether or not Coca-Cola is kosher. Now, the Jewish market in those days is not really strong enough that Coca-Cola is going to do anything to change its production. So Rabbi Geffen, at least initially, just wants to find out what the ingredients are. Knowing that it's a secret formula, what's he going to do? So here is this 
and let's just imagine for a minute, in the 1930s, this European rabbi, this short, small European rabbi, who wears a long coat and a big hat, and a long beard, of course, who only speaks Yiddish, or at least only admits to speaking Yiddish. Some of these Europeans knew how to speak English, read the, New York, read the newspaper, I guess he was reading the Atlanta Constitution, but never publicly spoke Yiddish. How was he gonna find out the ingredients? And how was he gonna negotiate with the people at Coca-Cola? Well, Rabbi Geffen, this well-respected rabbi in Atlanta, did have some connections. One of his connections was someone by the name of Harold Hirsch. Harold Hirsch was a prominent member of the Atlanta Jewish community. He was a reformed Jew, and he was the lawyer for Coca-Cola. Now, what does Rabbi Geffen have to do with Harold Hirsch, a reformed Jew? Well, as luck would have it, Rabbi Geffen's daughter went to public high school with one of Harold Hirsch's children. And it seems, and this is family legend, family lore in the Geffen family, but it may actually be true that Rabbi Geffen's daughter gave the valedictory address in their, from, in their public high school. And she was so impressive that Har and Harold Hirsch was there because his daughter was graduating as well. He was so impressed that he wanted her to go to his alma mater, University of Georgia. And he paid for her to go to University of Georgia for four years so that she would get an education which she couldn't have gotten without his generosity. She studied chemistry, which is gonna play an important role in the, in the puzzle as well. So Rabbi Geffen knows Harold Hirsch. Now he needs Harold Hirsch. So he goes and he meets with Harold Hirsch, explaining to him what he needs. Mr. Hirsch, who obviously respects Rabbi Geffen, he introduces Rabbi Geffen to Roy Gentry, who is the assistant to Harrison Jones, the vice president of Coca-Cola. And the story is told, we don't have this exactly in writing, but the story is told that Rabbi Geffen goes to meet with this Roy Gentry. And Roy Gentry is so taken aback by the fact that this European rabbi, and I don't know exactly who translated for them, maybe they didn't even communicate in words, I have no idea. But he's so, he was so impressed that this angelic-looking rabbi was there, had come to see him, that he develops a relationship with him. And Rabbi Geffen is given entree into Coca-Cola. And what I want to read is, I want to read a letter that Rabbi Geffen wrote in response to one of those questions about whether or not Coca-Cola is kosher. Look at the next page. Monday, July 2nd, 1934. The 19th day of Tom was in, in the year 5694. I'll read this slower than the last one. Honored Rabbi, 
We don't know who that was. I take this opportunity to make known and to publish to the Jewish public that upon the request of the officials of the Coca-Cola Company of Atlanta, Georgia, I visited the plant of Coca-Cola and inspected the process by which the Coca-Cola drink was made. I found that the glycerin, which is used at the present time and will be used in the future in the preparation of the Coca-Cola drink, is made from pure vegetable fat and does not contain any animal fat whatsoever. Therefore, I can state that the Coca-Cola drink is kosher in accordance with the Jewish dietary laws and may be partaken of by the strictest of Orthodox Jews. As a certificate of the above, I set my hand and seal the day and year above written. Rabbi Tobias Geffen, and look how he signs it. Chief Rabbi of the South. Who appointed him Chief Rabbi of the South? Obviously, Rabbi Geffen appointed himself Chief Rabbi of the South. But this is an amazing letter. So what does he say? He says Coca-Cola is kosher. But he identifies the potential issue. What was the potential issue? That glycerin can be made two different ways. It could be made of animal fat, and it could be made of vegetable fat. And what he found was that the glycerin, we're going to clarify this in a second, but what he writes here is that the glycerin is made of animal fat, and there is totally kosher. And therefore, sorry, is totally kosher. By the way, how does Rabbi Geffen know the difference between glycerin that's made of animal fat and glycerin that's made of vegetable fat? I mean, if I went into Coca-Cola, I would have no idea. Maybe you know about how you identify glycerin. But how would you, how does he possibly know how to identify glycerin? Well, now we're back to his daughter, who went to the University of Georgia, thanks to Harold Hirsch. His daughter studied chemistry. And she went on to have a profession in chemistry. And she was the one who evaluated the ingredients and analyzed the ingredients. And she came back to Rabbi Geffen with this information. Now, that's, not, that's, that's fascinating, but it's not so strange. That's the way these things worked out, right? What's a rabbi, a European, Yiddish-speaking rabbi? What's he going to do? It's going to be his, his minimal connections and his family and the next generation, the Americanized next generation, who are going to introduce and help their father as he tries to negotiate his way in the factory of Coca-Cola. Now, on the next page, we have something that is, if not unique, very, very rare. And that is we have, it's called a tshuva concerning Coca-Cola. It's an English translation translated by Rabbi Geffen's son and grandson of a Hebrew responsum that he wrote. I want to read just some of it. You know, sometimes when you read the response of a rabbi, and there's a, there's a whole study, we can spend an entire semester reading responses of rabbis, they give you an insight into what was going on in the American Orthodox community at the time. In the year 1935, he says, an inquiry was, in, was addressed to me 
concerning the well-known soft drink Coca-Cola, which is manufactured in the city of Atlanta, Georgia. Is it kosher for drinking during the entire year and on Passover? Ah, a new issue that he didn't talk about in the letter. What about Passover? Right, is there now, where is there bread in Coca-Cola? You help me, everybody. Where's there bread in Coca-Cola? There isn't any, so what's the issue? What's the issue? The issue is the sweetener. The sweetener could be made out of corn syrup. Thank you very much. And corn is not allowed on Passover. At least for Ashkenazic Jews, for Jews from Eastern European background, um, corn is not allowed on Passover. So there was an issue that needed to be addressed. After thorough inquiry and investigation at the factory, it became apparent to me that this drink was made from a variety of plant syrups, um, a secret formula known only to certain officials of the company. Moreover, this drink contained in its composition several other types of liquids, one of which I am designating as Morris and the other as Anigro. I don't know what those words mean. The M is a liquid product made from meat tallow and fat tallow of non-kosher animals. It is an item which Jews are forbidden to eat and drink. Certain employees of the Coca-Cola company estimated that the percentage of the M ingredient in the drink was a very minute proportion in the ratio of one to a thousand. I validated this assertion by submitting a random sample of Coca-Cola to the chief chemist of the state of Georgia. That's amazing, right? Means his daughter introduced him to the chief chemist in the state of Georgia for a thorough chemical examination. His analysis confirmed the fact that the percentage of M in the mixture was indeed one to a thousand. Now, in that paragraph, I learn a few things. Number one, what I learn is, that I don't get understand it, is I don't know what in the world this, these, these um, ingredients called Morris and Anigrone are, M and A. Why doesn't he just tell me what the ingredients are? That's number one. Number two is, now we have a moment of rabbinics for everybody. He says that he found that there was an ingredient, a liquid, that did come from the fat of non-kosher animals. <coughs> Sorry, now if that's true, that's not kosher. We have a rule. The rule is, that if you have non-kosher that gets mixed with kosher, as long as there's less than 60... Batel b'shishim. Fantastic, right. As long as it's less than a 60th, it doesn't make the food not kosher. Let's give a very simple example. You're making chicken soup at home on Friday morning, and you're drinking a cup of coffee while making the chicken soup. If the coffee spills into the chicken soup, you coffee and milk, then you probably have to throw out the chicken soup because it's a whole cup of coffee. But let's take the following case. You're very careful. You would never spill your coffee and milk into your chicken soup. But when you were pouring the milk into the cup of coffee, there was a little bit of milk that, you know, that was kind of residue on the side of the, cu of the cup of the mug. And that little bit of milk you notice, Ive, the little bit of milk falls into the chicken soup. So what's the status of your chicken soup? 
Do you have to start from scratch or you're okay? What's the answer? The answer is as long as there's 60 times more chicken soup than that little drop of milk, then you're okay. So he wants to see how much, how much of this, how much of this fat, meat fat, is there in the Coca-Cola. So he goes to the chief chemist in Georgia. Now immediately when you read that, you read this not as a, not as a, as a rabbinical student, but you read this as a historian, like your antennae go up. You say, Rabbi Geffen, Yiddish speaking only, you, you know, Eastern European rabbi in Atlanta, what is he doing with the chief chemist in the state of Georgia? How did he get to this person, right? And the answer is, of course, that that was his daughter. His daughter introduced him to the chief chemist in the state of Georgia. He was sophisticated enough to understand that this was a very serious matter, whether or not the Coca-Cola was kosher, and therefore he needed not just his daughter to write, you know, to, to say it was okay, but he needed what? He needed an official statement by the chief chemist in the state of Georgia. And that's what he got. One more point here, and then I want to look at something else. And that is, that is, he goes through some rabbinics here. But look at the next page, the end of the question. The um, third, um, the um, fifth line from the top of the second page. This problem arises because in its processing, the employees in certain mix the ingredient A, which is made from chametz, since any amount of chametz in a mixture pro pro prohibits its use on Passover, it is expressly forbidden to drink Coca-Cola on this holiday. Now, okay, so he says that therefore for Passover it's more complicated, but he's able to figure out that there is no chametz, there's no corn syrup. And here we go. Because Coca-Cola has already been accepted by the general public in this country and in Canada, and because it has become an insurmountable problem to induce the great majority of Jews to refrain from partaking of this drink, I have tried earnestly to find a method of permitting its usage. That line is worth the price of admission. What does that line mean? That line means that you know why Rabbi Geffen went to this trouble? You see, there are two ways to ask a question. We can take this can of Coca-Cola and we can reseal it. And we can say, I don't know if it's kosher or not. If it's kosher, I'm going to drink it. If it's not kosher, I'm going to put it away. The other way is, that you're drinking it, right? And you didn't really ask a question whether it was kosher or not. But I, the rabbi, or Rabbi Geffen, only want you to drink kosher. And therefore we need to find a way to make that drink kosher. Because you're gonna drink it anyway. And therefore, you're gonna drink it. It's on, it's on me to find, to make sure that it's kosher. It's a very interesting kind of psychology of rabbinic decision-making. Rabbi Geffen is very clear, and it doesn't surprise anybody. 
Jews were drinking Coca-Cola in the 1920s and 1930s. Of course they were. All Americans were drinking Coca-Cola. The rabbis who approached Rabbi Geffen didn't say, is Coca-Cola kosher? The rabbis who approached Rabbi Geffen approached him and said what? Rabbi Geffen, Coca-Cola needs to be kosher. Jews across America are drinking Coca-Cola. We need Coca-Cola to be kosher. You're the rabbi in Atlanta. We need you to figure out that Coca-Cola is kosher. Can you imagine the responsibility, the weight of responsibility that fell on this European rabbi to, you know, to make Coca-Cola kosher? And he's explicit here. And maybe he's taking credit because he figured the whole thing out. Maybe he's taking credit. He says, I did it. Coca-Cola is kosher. But he's very much aware of the fact that Coca-Cola has to be kosher. There is no alternative. Jews throughout America are drinking Coca-Cola. That is amazing. Now, the last piece. And that's this M&A business. What in the world does he give the ingredients that name for? So you tell me, everybody. Why does he give, the, why does he give those ingredients as M&A? Tell me, why does he give the ingredients as M&A? Why does he tell you what the real ingredients are? Why? I mean, he probably did know, because if he didn't know, he wouldn't be able to test them. Why didn't he give the exact ingredients? Why didn't he give the exact ingredients? Seek, thank you very much, secret formula. Look at the next page. Dear Rabbi Geffen, from the law offices of Harold Hirsch and Marion Smith, I have before me a translation of the article that you propose placing in your book concerning Coca-Cola. That's what we just read. Would you permit me to make a suggestion, and I would appreciate your accepting saying, meeting, he's very polite, I'm going to make a suggestion, but let me tell you, you're going to listen to me. We are most grateful for what you have done in this connection, but at the same time, the information we have given to you in regard Coca-Cola is confidential, and we should not like to have published to the world anything in regard to the contents of Coca-Cola. I ask, therefore, that you eliminate from your proposed article any reference to glycerin or alcohol as such, but simply answer the question you propound. Are we permitted to drink Coca-Cola on Passover as well as the entire year? By a very simple statement that you have investigated the manufacture of Coca-Cola and have been made aware of the certain ingredients thereof relating to the subject matter. And that you find after your investigation that Coca-Cola is permissible to drink during the entire year and on Passover, since the product is 100% kosher, containing nothing that violates any Jewish dietary law. And that the drink Coca-Cola, and Ari, this is really a long sentence, is, is, is a real kosher one, according to its methods of manufacture and all, and, and all Jewish people, even the true mahadrin, that means the ones who are especially careful, may consume this drink during the entire year as well as on Passover. What does he say to Rabbi Geffen? He says, Rabbi Geffen, I let you in on a secret. You see, this letter is great because what this letter tells us is that, that Harold Hirsch got him permission. He knew what the secret ingredients were. He knew he was one of the people who had the secret. Somehow he convinced Coca-Cola to give him the ingredients. But Harold Hirsch says, don't be foolish. You can't publish those ingredients. Just say that it's all kosher. Now notice that Rabbi Geffen doesn't exactly heed what Harold Hirsch wants from him. 
He still writes the letter with all the details of the ingredients and how, you know, how, you know there's there 60 times and all the details. But the way he gets around Mr. Hirsch's request is that he doesn't name the ingredients. Instead, he uses ancient Aramaic Talmudic terms to refer to these ingredients. You know, as if to say, you know, these are some kind of, you know, they're secret ingredients. They're, they're, they're mysterious ingredients. So he talks all about them, but he doesn't identify them by name. That in itself is so amazing. Now, oh, the last page, just in case, you know, just in case you need some proof that this is really so. Just look at the next page. Here's a Coca-Cola cap, right? Coca-Cola, six fluid ounces, Coca-Cola, registered United States Patent Office. It was on it, was scribbled in red ink. That's not printed, that's scribbled in red ink. Kasher Pesach, kosher for Pesach. Bashkachas HaRabtuvya Geffen, Atlanta, Georgia. Right, means that you know, either they printed it or they wrote it on each of the caps that it had Rabbi Geffen's, you know, certification. Today, kosher for Passover, Coca-Cola, is stamped with an OUP. But in 1935, that wasn't so. So why did I tell the story of Rabbi Geffen and Coca-Cola? I told the story because as an introduction to our discussion about American Jewry, we need to have a little bit of a feel, a background of, of how Eastern European Jewry, in this case Orthodox, but we'll see that it's much broader than that. The very difficult journey to become part of American society. But the fact that the journey was difficult didn't mean that the journey was impossible. To, deal, to those Jews who made the trip, who decided to leave Russia, to leave Lithuania, to leave Poland, to come to this country, even with all the persecutions, that was a huge leap of faith. And the Golden of Medina was kind of balanced by the sense of the treif of Medina, right? That this country was treif. I recently went to a family um, reunion, my family, the Mintz family, and one of my older relatives told the story that when our, my great-grandfather came to this country in 1890, that he first went to ask a Hasidic Rebbe whether he could come. And the Hasidic Rebbe told him, be careful, it's a Trefa Medina. That's what he told him. Obviously he knew it wasn't going to stop him from coming. But be careful, it's a trade for Medina. It was very hard for these Eastern European Jews to actually be part of American society. But what the story of Rabbi Geffen and of Coca-Cola teaches us all is that the fact that it was difficult, the fact that these Jews lived on the margins of American society didn't stop and whether it was lawyers that somehow they had a connection with, or daughters who went to university when their fathers couldn't even speak English, 
Their first entree into American society was also often very much roundabout. But the Geffen, Rabbi Tuvia Geffen lived to be 100. He died in 1970. His descendants, interestingly, are everywhere. And maybe most prominently in the conservative movement. His great grandson is the rabbi of a synagogue on West 93rd Street in Manhattan called Sharetzedek. His other great grandson is a rabbi in Sag Harbor. That's one of those places that Jews go in the summer in Long Island in New York. And his children continue to be involved across the denominations in American Jewish life. Their entree to Jewish life, their first step to being incorporated was their very pioneering, brave and courageous grandfather and great-grandfather who came from Kovna, went to New York, went to Canton, Ohio, and then went to Atlanta. And it's thanks to him that we all can say that Coca-Cola is kosher. Thank you so much, and I look forward to continuing this exploration over this coming week.